You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Hello, my name is Max Canella, and I'm bringing you today's reading from Job, chapter 2, 11 to 13, then all of chapter 4, 1 to 21. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. Then when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl. Yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and... The hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay? whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dust they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? On the 15th of April 2008, Elam Christian College in New Zealand was rocked by tragedy. Six students, all aged 16, and a 29-year-old teacher lost their lives when they were swept away in a flash flood while on a school trip in Tongariro National Park. The school principal, Murray Burton, said, Our grief is beyond words. We're going one step at a time, one hour at a time, and maybe even one minute at a time. 
It hurts badly and will hurt for a long time. Andy Bray, the father of one of the six students who died, said, It was a once in a million years kind of thing. All these kids were remarkable young people. They loved God and wanted to be part of making this world a better place. This is a real tragedy for New Zealand. Here's a Christian community, Christian students, parents, teachers and staff, shattered by this inexplicable event, trying to grapple with and make sense of this tragedy. Young lives with so much potential lost in a freakish accident that could not have been predicted. Imagine that you were asked to go to Elam College immediately after this tragedy. What would you say? What would you say to the students who had lost their friends, to the parents who'd lost their children? This is the situation that Job's friends are in. Job's lost everything. His wealth and possessions have been taken or destroyed. All 10 of his children dead in a single catastrophic natural disaster. His health gone as he's struck down by a terrible skin disease. When we left Job, he was sitting distraught amongst the ashes, refusing to curse God, and yet puzzled and shattered by what he has experienced. And it's at this point that Job's friends enter the story. Have a look with me at Job 2, 11 to 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. Job's friends get off to a good start. The temptation in tragic circumstances is sometimes to avoid people who are suffering. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. How can I help them? But they don't do that. Rather than avoiding Job, they determine to go and be with him. They meet together first. It's easier to tackle this as a group of friends. And they head off with the goal of sympathising with him and comforting him. So far, so good. When they see Job, they don't recognise him. Here's their friend who was the greatest man in the region, a prosperous businessman and a loving father, but this tragedy has shattered him so much and brought him so low that he doesn't even look like the same man that they knew. And they cry out and weep, tearing their robes and covering themselves in dust in solidarity with their friend. And they sit down at his side in the ash pile where he's grieving. And no one speaks a word for an entire week. For seven days and seven nights, they just sit there with him in the ashes, saying nothing, just being with him. Because they can see how great his suffering is. It's a great start by the friends. Another temptation in the midst of tragedy is to try and solve people's problems immediately, to fix it. But they don't do that. 
They're not too eager to speak too soon. They're satisfied to just be with Job and share his sorrow and pain. This is really the high point of the friends comforting Job. Because once they start to speak, it's all downhill. In chapter 3, which we skipped in our reading, Job finally speaks. He's refused to curse God, but now he curses the day of his birth. So great is his pain that he wishes he's never been born or that he died straight away at birth because then he wouldn't be going through this awful struggle. It's a powerful speech that shows just how much Job is hurting. It isn't just a case of, oh, trust God and it will be okay. No, he's struggling and grappling and grasping amidst the weight of the tragedy that he's experienced. And once Job has uttered this speech, the three friends take it as their cue to speak also. Now, I've put an overview on this slide which shows how the following chapters unfold, which deal with the dialogue between Job and his friends. What we get is three rounds of speeches. Eliphaz speaks and Job responds. Then Bildad speaks and Job responds. Then Zophar speaks and again Job responds. That's round one. And then in round two, each friend speaks again with Job responding after each one. And finally, in round three, only Eliphaz and Bildad speak. It's as if Zophar's run out of things to say. And we just get a long speech from Job in response to all that has been said. He addresses his friends and he addresses God, bringing his complaints to him. Today, we're just focusing on what the friends say. Next week, we'll look at what Job says. And Eliphaz's first speech in chapters 4 and 5 gives us a pretty good flavour of what the friends say to Job. In chapter 4, verse 2, Eliphaz is rightly hesitant as he begins speaking. He doesn't want to offend Job, but at the same time he feels he has to say something. And then in verses 3 to 6, he suggests that maybe Job's being a bit hypocritical. He's instructed and supported other people who've been going through trials, but now that it's happening to him, he's discouraged and dismayed. Shouldn't his fear of God and his blameless ways give him hope and confidence? Then in verses 7 to 9 comes the key point. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed. As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish, at the blast of his anger they are no more. Eliphaz appeals to his experience of how the world works. Those who do wrong reap the reward for the wrong things that they've done. That's simply the way the world works, Job. He repeats similar ideas in verses 12 to 21, but here he doesn't appeal to experience the way that he's observed the world working. He appeals to some sort of vision that he's had, to, to a revelation. 
but the gist of it is the same. Here's verses 17 to 19. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. No human being is perfect, says Eliphaz, and the implication is that neither is Job. What he really wants Job to do is to examine himself, realise where he sinned against God, so that he can repent of his actions and so that God can restore him. And this sort of thinking is the driving force behind all that the friends have to say. Um, have a look at Zophar in chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. You say to God, My beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. I mean, as if Job doesn't feel bad enough, Zophar's telling him that he's getting off lightly. He deserved more punishment from God than what he's received. Or here's Bildad in chapter 18, uh, verse 5. The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. He's saying the same thing. Bad things happen to bad people. And it's clear that he's applying this to Job's particular situation uh, because in verse 13 he says, It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. There's Job with his skin disease as uh, Bildad speaks this to him. And it's this sort of theological agenda and method of pastoral care which continues unabated. Indeed, the friends become stronger and stronger in their language as Job continues to deny that he's done anything wrong. What's driving the friends' advice is their theological position. They've got a certain understanding of how God works and how the world works, which leads to what they say. Here's a four-point summary of their position. God is absolutely in control. God is absolutely just and fair. Therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. Therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned and I'm being punished justly for my sin. Now, there's much here to commend, right? We'd certainly want to affirm the first two points. God is absolutely in control and God is absolutely just and fair. We saw last week that these are central ideas of the Christian faith. But after this, the friend's system starts to break down. 
while it's true that God punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness, the friends seem to think that this happens a bit like a, a vending machine. You know, you put your money in, press the button, and a can of Coke comes out. Right? They think, put in wickedness, press the button, and out comes punishment. Put in righteousness, press the button, and out comes blessing. But this is simply not consistent with what we see throughout the Bible. So in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in Luke 13, Jesus speaks to his disciples about Galileans who were killed by Pontius Pilate and about 18 people killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, he says. It's simply not the case that there's this direct mechanical causal relationship between sin and suffering. But these friends think that there is, and they also seem to think that, that God always acts immediately. If you do the wrong thing, you'll immediately get punished. But no, again, throughout the Bible, we see that God's timing is different. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of wheat and weeds growing alongside each other. And that it's only at the final judgment, at the end of time, that they're sorted out. You know, it may seem to us now that wickedness triumphs and righteousness fails, but God assures us that his justice will prevail and accounts will be set right. But it won't happen immediately. But because the friends think that there's a direct causal relationship between sin and suffering, and that this relationship is acted out instantaneously, it leads them to make a fatal mistake in their theology. And that has devastating implications for their pastoral practice. It leads them to their final point, that if someone suffers, they must necessarily have sinned and so are being punished justly. And they apply this brutally to Job. But we know, don't we, that this is simply not the case with Job. He is blameless and upright. He's one who fears God and shuns evil. God himself has said this about Job. So the advice from the friends that Job just needs to repent of some sin that he's committed so that he can be restored is completely unhelpful, damaging and wrong. Poor Job keeps telling them that he hasn't done anything wrong, but they persevere with their system and they get angrier and angrier with Job because they think that he's now saying that God is unjust. Yet it's Job who's speaking rightly and it's his friends who are wrong. At the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42, verse 7, God says this to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. They've been trying to defend God, but they've actually spoken lies about him. 
their neat little theological system is incorrect and applied to a difficult pastoral situation, it's downright damaging. And that brings us back to a consideration of ourselves. I posed the question at the beginning about what we might say to those affected by the tragedy at Elam College. But there are numerous other situations which we'll encounter which won't be anything of the magnitude of that tragedy. But where we need to be present for people who are suffering, and I take it that this is something that we desire for our church community here, that when someone is suffering, we will not seek to avoid them, but we'll gather together to sympathise with them and comfort them, to sit on the ground in the ashes at their side, perhaps in silence for a long period of time. Don't underestimate the power of presence. Just being with a person when they're having a hard time, having a coffee with them, going for a walk, being in the same room, turning up to a funeral is a powerful act of love. It says, I am here for you. I'm here with you. But what about when the time comes to speak? Or if you are asked by someone suffering, why is this happening to me? It's easy for us to dismiss Job's friends as clumsy fools and not to examine ourselves for the dangers that they fall into. Because I can think of numerous examples of how their mistake is repeated today. I had a friend whose father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at a fairly young age. Uh, he was a Christian, and so his church prayed that he would be healed, but it didn't happen. The trouble was that some friends at church then said to him, look, the, the reason that you haven't been healed is because you lack faith in God. He kept assuring them that he he was really and truly trusting God and that he wanted to be healed, but they had a theological system that they were sticking to, that the prayer of faith will bring healing now. And like Job, this theology resulted in very damaging pastoral practice because not only now was this man suffering physically, but he's also feeling guilty that his suffering was due to his own failure to exercise faith in God. Situations like this really highlight the importance of good theology because bad theology leads to bad pastoral practice and bad pastoral practice hurts people. Theology is not just something that's an academic exercise. No, it has practical implications. We must ensure that we get our theology right so that people don't get hurt. Even when our theology is right, we can still apply it at the wrong time. Part of being a wise and caring person is knowing the right time to say the right thing. Here's an example. Uh, Romans 8.28 says, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now that's true, and it's a great comfort to know. However, it may be completely inappropriate to quote that verse to someone who's just lost their best friend in a car accident. Given time, they might 
cite this verse for themselves with renewed faith and understanding, but it shouldn't be thrust at them in the wrong way or at the wrong time or without tears. Otherwise, it will seem like a cheap, heartless piece of proof texting. We need to make sure we say the right thing, but we also need to make sure that we say it at the right time. It really turns up the heat on our pastoral care of each other. I feel the weight of this passage as a minister uh, countless times when I've been driving to a tough situation. I've been praying on the way, God, I don't really know what to say in this terrible situation. I feel so weak and inadequate. Give me your grace so that I might say things that are helpful. The same applies to all of us. As a church, we're committed to mutual care. That as the body of Christ, we all have a responsibility to care for each other. We do that in our life groups, in our ministry teams, in our friendships and interactions. So how do we make sure that we do this in a way that is helpful and not harmful? It forces us to think through the complex situations that we encounter in the scriptures and not to apply simplistic solutions blindly to any situation and to have a spirit of humility as we approach tough situations in people's lives. Indeed, that's the nature of wisdom. It's knowledge that is rightly applied. The application of the truths of the Bible to a particular situation. But that takes discernment to know what truth applies in this situation. And ultimately, it shows us that we must be reliant on God for his wisdom, asking that God would deepen our knowledge of his truth, asking that God would help us to know his word and to meditate on it deeply, asking that God would give us the insight of his Holy Spirit as we minister to one another in difficult situations. Two years ago, someone from a previous church asked if we could catch up to have a coffee. I didn't know what it was about, but I said, sure, let's catch up. It turns out that he wanted to thank me for something I'd said to him when he was going through a crisis some 10 years earlier. Do you remember what you said to me when you came over and met with me? He said. I could only vaguely remember that I'd met with him and I certainly couldn't recount anything that I'd said. But he could. He repeated a phrase about God which I'd spoken, which had really helped him in that moment and he'd never forgotten it. Now, sadly, I can't tell you what that amazing phrase was because I've forgotten it again. But that's a good thing because it wasn't like it was some amazing truth bomb, you know, that you or I should just roll out that would always have an amazing impact. No, by God's grace and guided by God's spirit, it was a helpful truth from God's word for that person at that time in that situation. That's all God, not me. And if we rely on God when we minister to each other, and if we're willing to be brave and turn up for people, not avoiding them in a crisis, but being there in love, 
and humbly speaking truth when it's needed, then God will use us to help each other, to demonstrate mutual care and support, to be the body of Christ for each other, to be friends that help rather than harm in the moments of crisis. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.